Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow dim, that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out of the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel. He answered, Here I am, for you called me. Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, You called me. Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. Then the Lord called again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he arose, he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. And it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood, called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He answered, Here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also. If you hide anything from me, all of the things that he said to you. And Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. When I was a youth in a church youth group, uh, I remember on one occasion uh, this 
girl who was also a youth in the same youth group came up to me and she gave me a hug and she said, Andrew, God wanted me to tell you, and then she told me what God wanted her to tell me. I don't remember what that was. What I do remember is that this thing that she was telling me didn't apply whatsoever to my life, any circumstance that I was experiencing. Uh, And I also remember that in the future, days going by, nothing ever happened that she said would happen. Uh, There was no encouragement that she said I would receive. And this is one of the things early on that actually just turned me off to Christianity. How can uh, people who claim to hear from God be wrong about something? Uh, You know, and so I was just completely turned off to Christianity at this point. Um, I it wasn't until I was 15, this happened before I was 15, it wasn't until I was 15 that I came to know, to know Christ, but uh, this was uh, maybe my first encounter with anything that might be called prophecy. Uh, in our text for today, um, Samuel actually becomes a prophet of the Lord. God actually calls Samuel as a, his prophet. Uh, and so we, we come close to this idea of prophecy, and Scripture addresses in detail the gift of prophecy. And so as we just think about the first verse, again, that's all we're going to get to today is the the first verse. Um, But as we look to the first verse, we are going to consider together what the gift of prophecy is. And And if people actually have this gift of prophecy as it is described in the scriptures, we're going to see what the Bible teaches about the gift of prophecy, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament times. So, brothers and sisters, buckle in. (laughs) Buckle in. Uh, The scripture speaks deeply on this subject. So let's look and hear together. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Now the boy Samuel was ministering, serving, ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Uh, The very first thing that we see in this text, uh, first, Samuel was just serving the Lord, right? Later on in this passage, we'll we'll learn that Samuel did not know Christ yet. He did not know the Lord yet. Uh, He did not know God yet. He wasn't able to recognize the Word of God because he had not heard the Word of God at this point. But in this verse, we know that Samuel, as a boy, was serving the Lord uh, before the priest Eli, uh, in the presence of the priest Eli, sort of under the priestly authority of Eli the priest. And then we get to this interesting phrase in the text, and word from the Lord, literally uh, there, Vidabar Yahweh, which means word of the Lord or word from the Lord, God's word. God's word was rare in those days. Rare or infrequent simply means uh, that the word wasn't as present or as prominent as we we would like for it to be it was it was rare uh, in those days and then there is the clarifying phrase the modifier visions or revelations were infrequent now the word for visions there is a uh, Hebrew word that simply means word from 
God. And so when we think about revelation or vision in this text, the text is explicitly referring to word, intelligible words being spoken from God. And it says that visions were infrequent while Samuel was a boy serving the Lord before Eli the high priest. And so when we look to this text, when we look to this first verse, the thing that we know is is that Samuel, of course, who would be a prophet, who would be the prophet of the nation of, of Israel, the first prophet, the first person to fill this priestly office or the, the prophetic office, um, Samuel was actually living in a day when no prophet had yet been ordained uh, because God had not ordained a prophet uh, prophetic words from God, God speaking intelligibly to a person, and this person conveying the word of the Lord. This was infrequent. It's not that God was silent. That's not what the text is getting at. Uh, It's not that God wasn't moving or speaking. We've seen in the previous parts of 1 Samuel that God was actually speaking to Eli the priest. Uh, So we know that God wasn't being silent. Uh, We even know that there were people who had prophetic gifts um, because we can look to chapter 2 verse 35 and uh, God is is saying this, or actually not chapter 2 verse 35, um, but earlier in the chapter there when uh, a prophet of God, a man of God actually um, comes to Eli uh, and says, um, and says, you, Eli, well, let's just look for the verse here, and I'll read it. Please forgive me. Proof that pastors are imperfect, correct? Verse 27, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, speaking as a prophet. And this is what a prophet would do when he spoke the words of the Lord to someone else. Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage of Pharaoh's house? So we know that there were people who had this prophetic gift, people people who would hear from the Lord this explicit word and then transmit this word to someone else. Uh, This is the point at which God uh, has actually now ceased talking with Eli. And so God, God sent someone who had this prophetic gift to Eli to speak these words on his behalf, the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Uh, So we know that the prophetic gift existed before this time, but the official office of prophet, uh, Samuel is going to be the the very first one. And in this text here, verse 1, we actually read that uh, this prophetic gift was infrequent. And so there were people who had the prophetic gift, who heard the word of the Lord, transmitted the word of the Lord explicitly. This is the Old Testament definition of what it means to be a prophet. Um, But even this was not common. It wasn't something that could just be expected. It wasn't something that was widespread. And later on in this chapter, as we work through this chapter, we're actually going to see that that it's because God had chosen not to reveal himself and not to not to speak. So these really are the words of the Lord. When we do read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35 here, now we can get to verse 35 and remind ourselves of what verse 35 says. We see that God takes the responsibility upon himself to raise up for himself a faithful priest 
who will do according to what is in God's heart and God's soul. God also takes upon himself the responsibility to build him an enduring house. And he, the prophet that God will raise up, the faithful priest that God will raise up, will walk before my anointed always. And so as we come into the current passage, the current chapter of Scripture, the current part of this narrative, as we enter into this phase of transition between right the, the time of the judges and the time of the kings, and God is raising for himself this priest and this prophet Samuel, uh, we know that God actually explicitly says in chapter 2, I am the one working this out. I am the one raising up a faithful priest. I am the one who will raise up this faithful priest who will do all that is in my heart and my soul. And so Samuel, as he is, like we talked about last week, actively walking, working out the faith, working out what God is doing according to God's own providence, God actually takes this responsibility upon himself. I will raise up a faithful priest. This faithful priest will do all that is in my heart and in and in my soul. So we can't go into this thinking that there is anything of Samuel. Samuel doesn't know the Lord yet. Samuel hasn't heard the word of God yet explicitly as a prophet would hear the word of God. All Samuel is doing is serving, ministering before the Lord. God is the one who has chosen Samuel uh, from from before he was born, right? We saw him working that out with Hannah as we worked through chapter 1. God is the one who has chosen Samuel. God is the one who is raising Samuel up in this text. So that is verse 1. But verse 1 comes with, it's like opening Pandora's box. Because you mentioned the word prophecy and many, many people from many, many different worldviews and denominations and belief systems start going everywhere. When you mention prophecy, it's like a shotgun, right? And the shotgun is scatters, the shot scatters. And so people, the ideas scatter about what prophecy is. And, and people's minds start going to certain verses that they think describes prophecy. And, and it's really just confusing um, what exactly the gift of prophecy is. And so I want to spend this morning just considering biblically what the gift of prophecy is, what Scripture has to say about the gift of prophecy. And then as we continue through chapter 3, uh, we'll, we'll come into a better understanding of what is going on here with Samuel and God's interaction with Samuel. The first question that we might have is this. Who has the gift of prophecy? Does anyone today have the gift of prophecy? Who in the Old Testament had the gift of prophecy? Will anyone in the future have the gift of, of, of prophecy? Uh, if we look to verse 1 here, and we're just considering verse 1 here in 1 Samuel at, at this point, we see that the gift of prophecy was specifically, or particularly, both words work in, in this, on this occasion uh, when we start talking about this, right? Specifically given to those who would serve in the office as, as, as priests, in the, in the prophetic office here in this time. And Samuel would actually become the first Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist has been described by many as the last Old Testament prophet. Um, the new Elijah who would come and usher in the Messiah. And then Jesus actually takes on this role of prophet and priest and king. And we've seen this leading up to this point in 1 Samuel that everything in the text is pointing to 
Jesus as prophet and priest and king, Jesus, who is the Word of God, the Son of God incarnate, God the Son and God the Word incarnate, is the revelation, the full revelation in His flesh, the full revelation of God, God the Father, and the final revelation of the Father, right? Jesus takes on this role, and later on this morning, uh, we'll actually look to the book of Hebrews and see how the New Testament writers understood Jesus' role as, as prophet. But when Jesus assumes the role of, of prophet, when, when the office, when the prophetic office is fulfilled in, in Jesus, it seems there is no longer any need for an Old Testament prophet who would hear a word from God or the word of God and then transmit this word to the people of God or the nation of Israel or the king of Israel or anything like that. And so when we talk about prophecy in the Old Testament sense of the gift of, of prophecy, uh, it seems that this gift has, has ceased. And this is important for us to understand as the narrative unfolds, especially between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because we believe, right, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and of the prophets, then Jesus is the one who holds this office, and Jesus is the one who is responsible for the perfect revelation from, from God. It's, it's all in, in Jesus. The New Testament, though, does speak of a gift of prophecy, and we can't read through the Bible and miss this. And so we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1-19. through 19. In the context of 1 Corinthians as a book, as a letter, Paul is writing to this church that is just experiencing some problems, right? Uh, the main problem is division, conflict within the church, particularly regarding the use of spiritual gifts. And as Paul addresses the gift of, of prophecy, um, he, he here is, is going, to, going to get at what prophecy is as he has experienced it and as he understands the New Testament definition of prophecy to be. And we're going to notice that it is, it is different just a little bit from the Old Testament gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this to the church. Pursue love. Yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So, so the gift of prophecy is not just something that exists in some New Testament sense, but it's something that every single believer ought to desire earnestly according to Paul. Desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So we see here that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament sense accomplishes a purpose, the edification of Christ's body, the church. The gift of prophecy accomplishes exhortation between people, teaching. And it accomplishes consolation in time of need, comforting in time of need. These are the things that the gift of prophecy would, would accomplish in the New Testament era. Verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. 
but one who prophesies edifies the church. And there, there we see it again. The purpose of prophecy is that the church would be edified, built up in Christ. Verse 5, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And so Paul starts talking about the, the gift of tongues, right? I wish that you all would speak in tongues. Paul is saying this, but even more so that you would all prophesy. And so he begins to measure these gifts according to importance and the benefit of the body. And at the top he places, he places prophecy, he places prophecy above even this supernatural gift of, of tongues, even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. And there we see Paul's motivation again, the building up of the church, the edifying of the church. So prophecy, whatever this gift is in the New Testament, accomplishes the edification, the building up of Christ's body in Christ. Verse 6, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you? unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? Could you imagine going to hear an orchestra play and everybody is playing something different according to according to just the way that they want to play. It wouldn't be edifying. Here, he equates prophecy to, to symphony, to harmony in music with multiple instruments and, an, and what we would refer to as an orchestra playing. Prophecy is, is this beautiful, wonderful thing that edifies, edifies the body. For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for for battle. Now the instrument on, on the battlefield, if, if the bugle plays the wrong sound, people won't march ahead because the, that sound that's being played doesn't mean march ahead. And so, so we just stay with this idea. Prophecy is edifying to the church. Verse 9, So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, like these instruments that Paul has used as an illustration, that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into, into the air. And so the goal of prophecy is that, one, whatever is being spoken is understood. And so we add another layer here. Not, it's edifying to the church because it's understandable, because we are clear about what we are saying. This is intelligible and communicable, whatever we are saying, whatever we are prophesying. Verse 10, There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. If we can't understand one another, it's like we're barbarians to one another. Our gathering together and our, and our communicating with one another serves no purpose if we can't understand what what we mean when we are speaking to one another. Verse 12, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the 
church. Do not seek what does not edify the church. Seek out what does edify the church. And so Paul is encouraging every believer to seek after this gift of prophecy which edifies the church. Verse 13, Therefore, let no one who speaks in a tongue, uh, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Encouraging us not just to be emotional or caught up in what's going on, but before it to actually be intelligible, our interaction with Christ to be intelligent interaction that we benefit from, our minds to be challenged and for us to challenge the minds of of others, these are these are things that are included in this New Testament gift of prophecy. Verse sixteen. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God, I Paul the apostle. Not Andrew Cannon, Paul the Apostle. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. We move forward in this chapter just a little bit. And in verse 34, There you can see, um, after he says women are to keep silent in churches, and we're not going to exposit that at this moment. We will walk through 1 Corinthians sometime. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves. And then he says, just as the law says. And so in the same chapter, after addressing what it means to prophesy, he then equates this teaching, this exhortation, this encouragement that we receive from one another, specifically, explicitly to the words of the law, just as also the law says. That's the first five books of the Old Testament, but people would say the law referring to the entire Old Testament. Paul is saying, this, the source of this prophecy, the content of this prophecy, it's, it's the Scriptures, the written Word of God. And so the New Testament understanding has, has changed slightly. We see it again in verse 36, where Paul refers again to the Word of God. The Word of God, it doesn't come from you. And Paul is getting at this argument. He's asking these rhetorical questions. The Word of God doesn't come from from you. And the Word of God hasn't come to you only. It's not secret knowledge. It's stuff that has been written for everyone. And then in verse 37, we see him equated again to the Lord's explicit written commandment. And so whereas the Old Testament prophetic office was receiving, like, we picture this audible word of the Lord coming to the prophet, and the prophet would transmit this word. After the Old Testament canon is closed, after it is completed, the gift of of prophecy changes slightly. I mean, it is still conveying the word of the Lord. It is still an offering of the word of the Lord, an explaining of the word of the Lord. But, But now, the content is specifically, specifically, God's written word in Scripture. And to clarify, already in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul, Paul has said, We should not exceed what is written. Do not exceed what is written. And it's a warning he gives before he even begins addressing the spiritual gifts in the church at Corinth. Do not, do not exceed 
what is what is written. And so who has the gift of prophecy? We'll go ahead and answer this question, right? In the Old Testament, it was those whom God had ordained to the prophetic office. And prophecy in the Old Testament looked different than it does here in the New Testament and in our, in our time. And the New Testament were to ask who has the gift of prophecy. No one today has the gift of prophecy regarding the Old Testament definition of prophecy according to the Scriptures. The gift of prophecy today is that someone would be able to read the Scriptures, and it is a spiritual gift according to Paul, is that someone would be able to read the Scriptures and rightly divide the Scriptures and present the Scriptures as the Scriptures need to be presented. And that is the New Testament gift. And there, there are many people who have this gift. And it is still a proclamation of God's Word that God has declared. Only now in New Testament times we are declaring the Word of the Lord as it is written. And God is very clear within this Word to instruct us not to exceed what is written. And it's a very, very important thing to grasp. A very, very important thing to understand. Then we have the next question that follows logically, right? Because there are many religions or worldviews or cults in our day who, who will say that they have a prophet who is God's last messenger or God's last prophet. Or what if someone claims to be God's last messenger? And what if someone claims to be God's last prophet? Scripture would indicate that no, there are no prophets like this. And mysticism is uh, a a type of religion, and it stretches across the board. There are Christian mystics, and there are mystics in other religions, but but they believe that through meditation or through their own consideration or or by thinking upon things that themselves that they can arrive at some sort of special revelation from from God or secret knowledge. The Gnostics would teach this, and Paul addresses Gnostic teaching through the New Testament uh, that through my meditation I can arrive at some sort of some sort of divine revelation that isn't necessarily written in in the scriptures. And so what if someone does claim to be God's last messenger or prophet? What if someone does come to us and say, God told me to tell you, this would be a very Old Testament view of the gift of prophecy, right? That was real in the Old Testament, served a purpose in the Old Testament, but but now is 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 different according to the text of scripture. What if we we see this. Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 14. Let's look at the words of Christ together. His disciples ask him, When will the end come? When will you come in, in all of your glory, Jesus? And Jesus answers. Chapter 24, the book of Matthew, starting in verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his, his disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, said to them, He doesn't tell them when it's going to come. He, he says, Be sure that no one misleads you. See to it that no one misleads you. Verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And Christ there is the Greek word Christos, which 
which means literally the anointed one, the one who is anointed. Prophets would be referred to as the anointed one. Jesus is the one who officially assumes the role of prophet forever. Christ means the anointed one. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, I am the anointed one. And they will mislead many. Jesus doesn't leave any room for there to be what we would call an Old Testament prophet today. He said, those who come and claim to be anointed, claim to be the last messenger, or claim to be the final prophet of God, or claim to introduce a New Testament of of Jesus Christ, they will mislead many. It's an absolute statement made by Jesus. Verse 6, he says, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But but that is not yet the end. Verse 7, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of of birth pangs. And and he even describes later in the chapter how the disciples will be witnesses of these things. The apostles will be witnesses of these these things, the beginning of birth pangs. So all of these things, they begin in the time of the apostles and they they stretch until Christ returns. Verse 9, still talking with his apostles, says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation. They, those who claim to be the anointed of God, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And in verse 11, many false prophets referring to these same people, the same group, those who claim to be anointed of God, many false prophets will arise and will will mislead many. It's another absolute statement. Verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So, you know, we ask Jesus, or we, we come to Jesus who inspired this word, and Jesus here who's teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, explicitly teaching his apostles. What if someone comes claiming to be a prophet in the manner of Old Testament prophet, claiming to be God's last messenger? What if someone comes to me and says, God told me to tell you, in a sense that the Old Testament prophets w- would do, Jesus says, Do not be misled by them, they are false prophets. Absolute statements from our Lord Jesus Christ. Very very strong statements from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this, I don't think, means necessarily that every time we hear from God that it's, this is what's happening, right? So we ask the next logical question. What if I think that I have heard from God? There are quite a few people today who have this experience of hearing from God or, or almost audibly hearing God's voice. Some of us in this room have had this experience where, where we've, we've, it almost seems like we've, we've heard the voice of God or have almost audibly heard God's, God's voice. Once in my life I distinctly remember 
praying at, at a leadership camp, and I was one of the, the team leaders, and, and a bunch of students were about to come in, and we were going from room to room praying over this leadership camp that we were doing at Oklahoma Baptist University, um, and, and I, couldn't pr- I couldn't pray. I went into one room, and I went to pray, and nothing came, nothing. The scare, one, no, the scariest moment of my life. I'm willing to say it, the scariest moment of my life. And finally, the, the only thing that I could pray was just, God, what do you want me to do? And I distinctly remember this. Now, we don't preach our experiences, right? We measure our experiences according to Scripture. And so when I'm telling you my experiences, this is not me telling you this is how things are. This is me telling you I distinctly remember this happening. When I was, Finally, the only words I could speak was, God, what do you want me to do? And then almost audibly, I heard a response. I'll keep that response to myself. It was for me, not for you. But I've had this experience. I talk with several other people who have this experience or distinctly having this type of experience, right? And so we look to the scriptures to see if this experience is valid or if what I, what I was experiencing was something that I just convinced myself of. You know, you think, did that really happen? Did I convince myself of this thing? And we get, begin to have those thoughts, and sometimes we explain it away. And, and sometimes we twist the scriptures in order, to, in order to support the fact that, yes, I really did have a spiritual experience, when that's not what it was. So, so let's just consider the scriptures, the scriptures together. Do we see anybody in the scriptures in the New Testament moving forward Hearing God audibly or almost audibly. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is blinded on the Damascus road. And he hears from Christ who audibly says to him, everybody else heard like thunder or something, I don't know, but Paul hears, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul is blinded. His people lead him into Damascus. And in Damascus, there's a man named Ananias, still in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, who hears God audibly in a dream, I think, and he is told, go get Paul. And this isn't the Old Testament gift of prophecy where, where God is saying, you, transmit my message. No, he's giving instruction, giving very specific instruction to a person. So this, this isn't the gift of prophecy, but people are, are hearing God audibly. Cornelius, a Gentile, Roman, who's not even a believer in Acts chapter 10, hears God and comes to faith as a result. Paul, again, in Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 27, hears God give him instruction. Pilate's wife hears God in a dream, and this dream scares her to death. And she said, I am suffering in my dreams because of that man, and points at Jesus. And so we see this described in the text. And this isn't the gift of prophecy. This is just people hearing God. Not God saying, here is the word of the Lord. Now go declare the word of the Lord to someone. That's not what's happening there. But people are hearing God. And we see Christians hearing from God. And this this isn't like a universal experience. Not everybody hears God in this way. But we see some Christians do. Some non-Christians do according to the text. People who are about to become Christians do. According to, the, according to the text, Pilate's wife did, which is very, very interesting to me. And then we hear stories today about how Muslims are having dreams. A man in a white robe comes to them. It's 
It's common. Muslims who come to Christ have this dream. A man in a white robe comes to them, stretches out his hand, and first says, why are you persecuting me? And then gives them specific instruction. Go and find this person staying in this place. And they go to this person staying in this place. And this person just so happens to be a missionary who is there to share the gospel. And they share their experience. I saw a man in a white robe in a dream. And he told me to come see you. And missionaries, they know what's going on, right? Missionaries serving in Muslims, they, they, know, they know what's going on. I know exactly what I need to tell you. Let me share the gospel with you. Would you like to give your life to Jesus? Yes, I would. This is the man in the white robe. Let me tell you about the man in the white robe. This is common experience in Muslim nations where there's much persecution. And so not only do we see that people do hear God in the Bible, in the New Testament time, people who aren't even Christians, but then... We see people coming to faith because a man in a white robe visits them. And then we have our experiences where we think we hear God. And if we measure that according to the Scriptures, then it is entirely possible that we hear, that we hear God or almost hear God audibly. And maybe we shouldn't try and justify that as someone else. What we can say for sure, though, is that this is not the Old Testament gift of prophecy. That's just hearing God. The Old Testament gift of prophecy is something different from, from that. The Old Testament gift of prophecy, it has, it has ceased. And if we don't believe, there are quite a few people who, who they're called continuationists, right? Uh, that's the formal name, the academic term that's placed on this group of people, continuationists, who are convinced that, that none of the gifts in any form have, have ceased. And they're particularly referring to sign gifts, but I think this falls into that category. Uh, if we don't believe that the Old Testament gift of prophecy has ceased, then we should pay very, very close attention to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22, before there was an official prophetic office. God gave instruction in His law regarding those who may have this Old Testament gift of prophecy. And He says this, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in My name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Flat out. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? You don't know what you don't know. Verse 22, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, as a prophet speaking the word of God, told me to tell you this. Or, I am God's final messenger. Here is a new, a new testament of Jesus Christ, or a new book of Scripture that God has given. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. He will die, according to two verses earlier. This is very, very serious for us to consider. And so if we believe there to still be Old Testament prophets in our day, or people who have this gift to hear a word from the Lord and come, come to us and say, God told me to tell you this, According to the Old Testament law, they are measured by whether or not this thing comes true. And if it does not, God says they will die because they are misrepresenting me. This is serious. This is why I am so, so glad, so thankful 
that I am not called to be an Old Testament prophet, but simply to exposit God's written word. I don't want that kind of pressure. God bless Jeremiah and Isaiah and and Hosea and Elijah and and John the Baptist and Elisha and all the other prophets that are listed in in the Old Testament that did have this prophetic gifts and, and wrote it down so that we might benefit from the Word of God through them. That's a lot of pressure. Don't get this wrong. Don't speak presumptuously. Don't misspeak the Word of God. So we believe that this gift has ceased. If it has not... Those who have this gift ought to be very careful with what they say. But the New Testament gift of prophecy is simply the expositing of the word that God has given us according to to Paul. In the New Testament, nowhere do we see anyone who has the Old Testament gift of prophecy apart from John the Baptist and, and Jesus. But the closest we get is... John, the Apostle, in the book of Revelation, right? Where he calls this a revelation from, from the Lord, and there's all of this imagery, and, and, and he's having visions, and he's speaking with, with an angel. And that's the closest we get. But even the book of Revelation uses the imagery explicitly described in the Old Testament and has the same meaning that the Old Testament does attached to that imagery. It's still an exposition of the Old Testament. That's the closest we get in the New Testament. And so even the apostles and James, the brother of, of Jesus and, and Jude, when they wrote the Scriptures, the New Testament Scriptures, it was explicitly an exposition of what God had already given. And according to them, and we'll see it when we look to Hebrews here in a moment, explicitly according to them, not the Old Testament gift of prophecy. They were under the same standard then that, that we are, they were expositing the Old Testament Scriptures, the written Word of God. And God was inspiring the New Testament through that work of the apostles and, and those who walked with, with Jesus. It really is something to think about. This is all fulfilled in Jesus. Of course, we've learned the Law and the Prophets, they are fulfilled in Christ. And so this Old Testament prophetic office is fulfilled explicitly in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is prophet and priest, and Jesus is king. And the New Testament writers recognize this. Now, at last, drum roll, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in the last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Jesus has taken the office of prophet. He spoke through the Old Testament prophets in that way. Now He speaks through His Son, Jesus. This is the wording. Jesus has been appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. So Jesus is not only heir of all things, but He's the one through whom the world, all of creation was made. Verse 3, And He, Jesus, is the radiance of His, God the Father's glory, 
and the exact representation of God the Father's nature. God, Jesus, is the final revelation in His flesh. There is no other new New Testament. There are no more Old Testament prophets. It's all revealed in Jesus' flesh. And it's Jesus who upholds all things by the word of His power. When He, Jesus, had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty, God the Father, on high. Jesus is the one who assumed the prophetic position. Jesus is the one who holds that position perpetually. And this is the understanding now. We see it explicitly, the New Testament understanding that this office served the purpose of preparing the way for Jesus. And this office is fulfilled in Jesus. This office is occupied by Jesus perpetually. There are no more Old Testament prophets here in the New Testament time. This was all pointing to Jesus and is fulfilled explicitly in Jesus. Do we see how everything in the Old Testament it just points to Jesus? Jesus, 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 Jesus. And Jesus is the one in whom we find our salvation. Jesus is, is the one who provides a revelation of God. He is, he is the revelation of God. And if we are to know anything about who God is, that, that information is provided by Jesus. Jesus is the one who inspired the whole text of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. Jesus is the one from whom we get this information and the content of our lives. It's all about Jesus. And to those who are not in Christ, we... We struggle to find truth and to find information and we have to come up with all of these mystic things to try and arrive at some sort of spiritual fulfillment. It ends up not working in the long run, right? We need Jesus. That's why Jesus refers to Himself in the Gospels as our only teacher. Do not call anyone teacher or leader or father, He says. You only have one teacher. He's referring to Himself. He is the revelation. And that's it. It's all Him. And as we read through this, this part of the narrative in, in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and in the week or weeks to come, we'll find out. And we will see how, how God works together all of His revelation through the Old Testament prophets and is preparing preparing the way for Jesus to assume His rightful throne within His own creation. And this really is amazing stuff, and it always points back to Christ. We need Christ. Do we want to know truth? Follow Christ. Christ is the one who reveals that. He is the one who guards our steps. He is the one who gives us the Scriptures. Only by by His power and the drawing of the Holy Spirit can we understand what the Scripture says and, and the depths of, of, of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the, is the only one who will lead us into all truth. This is the position of the New Testament. And this is where the Old Testament points. And it's all important and it works together wonderfully. We'll make some application and then, and then we will be finished this morning. But we will not be finished because God causes us to reflect on His Word. People in this world often tend toward mystic religion. 
as we mentioned, right? Even the Pope claims to have spiritual knowledge and special revelation from God. This, this is why this is why statements have been made with the Catholics called ex cathedra doctrines that aren't explicitly stated in Scripture, but they need to be doctrines anyway. The Immaculate Conception has to do with with Mary. Is one of those. Other denominations or religions will use mysticism or pursue religion in a mystic or Gnostic way. And these, these include uh, religions that have a, a final prophet, the last messenger of God. It would be like Islam and Mormonism and Seventh-day Adventists. There are other religions who just, just get more mystic and and assume that the gift of prophecy is something that it's not, and it ends up causing people to live in a way that is completely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I actually looked through religions this week, I saw that there were many, many, many philosophies and many worldviews. Meditate, and you can get the knowledge you need. You can become one with the universe. You can get this secret knowledge. This spiritual knowledge that is not necessarily obtained in an intelligible way. But the gift of prophecy was entirely intelligible in both the Old and New Testaments. Even Jesus, when He was teaching, exposited the Old Testament. Mystics believe that there is spiritual knowledge that is inaccessible to the intellect, and that this secret knowledge is attained through contemplation, meditation, prayer, or some sort of self-surrender. Sometimes we think about prophecy in a way that is more mystic or Gnostic than biblical, and the scriptures are actually very clear on this as we saw this morning. What is written is our only authority and is entirely sufficient for all of life and all of ministry. And this is the view of the New Testament writers. What is written? It is not only our only authority, but it is the only thing that is all-sufficient. I heard somebody say, the preacher said, I heard someone say that our, our problem is not necessarily in thinking about the inerrancy of Scripture. Most Christians will grant the inerrancy of Scripture. It is inerrant. Our problem is that we don't realize the all-sufficiency of Scripture. And I could see where that might be true. Scripture is all-sufficient. Now, this doesn't mean that the Scriptures are all we can learn. Right? You have people who believe that, too. Ah, the only thing you ought to be learning is, is what is in this book. That may not be the case, right? That's not what we mean when we say sola scriptura or Scripture alone. That's not what we mean. What we do mean is that the explicit Word of God is given clearly in Scripture. And this is the authority under which we pursue any discipline. We pursue any discipline. God's Word is preeminent, and God's Word, when we understand it rightly, correctly, in context, what, is it, what, is that, what it is actually saying is actually the lens through which we then become able to do good philosophy. It becomes the lens through which and the authority under which we, we can study history in a decent manner in which we can make scientific inquiry, in which we can participate in the arts, and, and by which we do 
manual labor and practice proper work work ethic. This is the authority under which every other discipline is done in a worthy manner. The scriptures are the authority and the lens through which we learn everything else that can possibly be learned. Whether we're learning by observing the creation or we're learning by, and this is my favorite thing to do, getting in a quiet place and just thinking really critically about things. That's called philosophy. Philosophy is just thinking really hard about stuff. And that's one of my favorite things to do, but we do it under the authority of Scripture, through the lens of Scripture. And then maybe through those other disciplines we might arrive at some truth regarding the material universe and and things and, and metaphysics, which is the physics behind the physics, the stuff that you don't see, which is really cool too. And string theory? Oh, dark matter? Ha. I was watching a lecture and Katie didn't want to watch it with me. She doesn't like watching those things. I just don't understand why. I don't understand it. <laughs> our understanding of who God is drives our understanding of all things. God has told us explicitly who He is for the purpose of His church being edified. For the purpose of His church being edified and for the purpose of God the Father receiving all glory. As we work through this part of the narrative in the coming week or weeks, we will see. We will see how God is doing this through Samuel and how God is preparing the way through Samuel, who God says explicitly, I am raising him up for myself. He will be a faithful priest. I am bringing him up to do all that is within my heart and my mind. And God said that explicitly. We reflect on these things.